even though I think it's Plato, Aristotle, some medievalists, Nietzsche, and like Adorno or, you know, other people in the 20th century, it could be entirely different. You may end up with Zizek. Oh, don't say that. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies, casually known as ICS. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member, which is what we call our students. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life here at ICS. Each week, we will invite a new panel of guests, including past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Mark Standish, and I'm also an ICS junior member. With us today, we have Julia DeBoer, junior member and PhD student at ICS. We'll introduce Julia when we get to our second segment. And that gets us to the first of our new regular segments. Don't miss this. In this segment, we will highlight all kinds of things that we don't want you as our listeners to miss. New books and articles in philosophy, theology, and current affairs, important events and anniversaries in these same worlds and in the church year, and every now and then, an event at the Institute for Christian Studies. So, Danielle, what should we not miss out on? My don't miss this item is a plug for Hector, who we had on our show last week, Hector Acero Ferrer. In his capacity as the associate director of the CPRC, he partnered with a number of other institutions like the Peel Newcomer Strategy Group, World Renew, and Center for Community-Based Research, and a number of others that there's not enough time to name. It's like a page long. They partnered to do a long-term research project, and they published the results of this research project at the beginning of this year, and it's called Faith and Settlement Partnerships, Setting Immigrants and Canada Up for Success, and in addition to kind of the longer published results, which are very detailed and all the charts and numbers and surveys and everything that they did, they have also published a facilitator's guidebook. So basically, what the project was looking at was the interaction between like faith communities and government agencies in how they facilitate new immigrants integrating into Canadian society. And part of the major outcome of that was making this facilitators a guidebook to help those communities learn from their research to like learn best practices and kind of improve on how to integrate people more easily and better. So it's a really a really interesting project and it was a really there's a lot of a lot of effort put into it but my plug is for that guidebook for that faith and settlement partnerships study 
we'll have a version of the handbook or the guidebook up on on the ICS website soon. So we'll provide a link for that. My Don't Miss This is a Christmas concert in Hamilton. Um, my church is putting on on December 15th. That's Saturday, December 15th at 7 p.m. at St. Peter's Church on St. Clair Avenue in Hamilton. The Christmas concert is a bunch of my friends and fellow parishioners that are really musically talented, create a choir, and have guitars, piano, violins, and it creates this really big sound. It is a time where we invite you to sing with us classic Christmas hymns and to join in with a choir that is really well put together. So if you're around Hamilton on December 15th, please come out and have a good time with us. It'll be great. In the second of our new regular segments, we want to give you a glimpse of what it's like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. And so we will simply be asking our guest, what are you working on? We'll be talking about seminars and courses taking place at ICS at this moment, the reading and other research our members are doing, our writing, publishing, presentations, and conference participation. So welcome, Julia. Hello. Nice to be here again. Nice to have you. So we ask our guests a standard set of three intro questions. So first, tell me, what was your favorite book in childhood? Yes, my favorite childhood book in the very early years, at least kind of pre-kindergarten, was a picture book called The Best Nest by P.D. Eastman. And I believe the popular story in my family goes that I asked my mother to read this to me multiple times a day for a period of time. And uh, she probably indulged more than I deserved. In reading this to me, and uh, it actually made its way into one of the epigraphs of my MA thesis because I wanted to honor the fact that their willingness to just read the same book over and over again probably led to this fascination with words and <laughs> I love the story that kind of got me towards an MA. What's the epigraph? Mr. Bird was happy. He was so happy he had to sing. This was Mr. Bird's song. I love my house. I love my nest. In all the world, my nest is best. <laughs> so a little bit of fun rhyming. It had these cute kind of pastel washed pictures that went along with it. And it all began there. Ah, the origins of Julia. Yes. Well, I find it interesting listening to this podcast uh, in the first couple episodes and also talking with a lot of other philosophers in that so many people end up in graduate departments because they were voracious readers as children. Mm. And how common of a theme that is and how similar the reading list is among all of those people. Mm -hmm. Like there's a couple heavyweights that always show up again and again and again. It's true. It's true. It's like an indication early on. Yeah. Uh, second of three intro questions. For our listeners who may live in Toronto or visit, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop here in our hometown? My favorite coffee shop would be on Roncesvalles out near High Park. It's called Gloria. It's been open for maybe three or four years now, and I'm there pretty regularly. They have amazing bagels. They have good locally roasted coffee. And they also get all of their pastries and scones and baked goods of that variety from a bakery in Kensington Market called Blackbird Baking Company, 
Oh, Blackbird. Yeah. <laughs> Legendary in this town. Blackbird is also worth mentioning, even though it is neither a coffee shop or a bar. Yes. It is an excellent bakery. And not only do they sell their own things there, but they also ship them out to places like Gloria and other parts of town so that even if you're at a distance from Kensington Market, you can still have the amazing pastries. So I would highly recommend that. That's Gloria on Roncesvall. It is a nice coffee shop I've also visited. Third and last intro question is the most controversial. Who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time, or if you want to be more contentious, of all time? I don't know that I could single out a specific person, though I am currently taking the Zizek course and (laughs) content aside, I just hate his writing style. And I think that's what singles out my enjoyment or disapproval of certain philosophers is writing style, because I think it's unnecessary to be overly technical in most types of philosophy. Maybe metaphysics uh, or some sort of systematic theology or philosophy is the exception to that. But probably because I come from a background loving literature and story, and my interest in philosophy came from authors who were talking about philosophical ideas via these interesting narrative forms. I really, really shy away from even some of the most popular philosophers that I'm supposed to have read because it feels like torture to sit and read them. So I probably, I have read some Kant. I'm not going to say I've read zero Kant and I'm this far in a philosophy degree or something. I have read some, but I just am very slow to read more uh, for that reason. But I don't think that you have to be dry, even if you're doing something like a systematic philosophy or a very analytical style, or if you eschew a narrative style for more like a point by point analysis. I don't think that necessarily means that you have to be a dry writer. And I think of Ludwig Wittgenstein here, depending on the work, he's very poetic. Mm -hmm. So in the philosophical investigations, maybe more so than his tractatus, the points are very lyrical and almost a storytelling uh, in each individual point. So I wouldn't wish to be too critical because I'm sure my own philosophical writing does not live up to the <laughs> the greats, but I think it's sad that we permit such poor writing to accompany such great ideas. <laughs> I find clarifying language and poetic language are not necessarily two ends of the spectrum, that there may be emphases that you can take in various moments. And so I think it's fine to employ technical language, but it doesn't have to be jargony all the time. And I think that's really off-putting to a wider part of the population who could be really interested in philosophical works if they were more accessible. Like with Zizek, I can't say that I haven't learned a lot from this course. I have definitely gained an understanding of the lay of the land when it comes to current metaphysics, but it takes a really long time to decipher some of the paragraphs. And I would say that I have an above average vocabulary, a love of reading, and I'm also doing a PhD in philosophy and I'm struggling with it. And I don't (laughs) think that's right. Yeah. So is Zizek your go-to or are you just sidestepping? Uh, possibly sidestepping. I'm I'm definitely sidestepping this question, but I don't know that I, with philosophers like Zizek, I can get to the point of even saying that their ideas are overrated because there's just such an investment to understanding what they're saying in the first place that it's hard to judge them on the grounds of their arguments. Fair enough. And that kind of a criticism would make sense given what you're studying, right? Given your areas of interest. So maybe we can slide into that and you can explain what it is that you have been working on and are currently working on. Certainly. So in my undergrad, I ended up studying linguistics and Latin language, uh, very interested in grammar. Um, And I came to university after kind of giving myself a classical literary education. So I 
you know, started off with the best nest when I was a kid, but then it kind of progressed to chapter books pretty early and, you know, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, as you mentioned, but the Bronte sisters and Jane Austen was a really, really huge influence. And I read uh, Louisa May Alcott, Lucy Maud Montgomery, just kind of the female classics of, you know, these, these female authors. And so I was really interested when I got to university and was studying linguistics and understanding kind of the structure of languages that would permit such, you know, poetic and literary success. And then I had my kind of postmodern moment in university, as you do when you get to graduate institutions of that kind. And the big stock phrase in linguistics is descriptive grammar, not prescriptive grammar. Mm -hmm. And I certainly understood all of the historical reasons for saying that grammar is descriptive and not prescriptive, because what passed as good grammar or good speech for far too long was always what was uh, upper class, middle class, and usually white. And so it was proper to linguistics as this kind of semi-scientific, anthropological, cultural studies discipline to not go in with an eye to anything prescriptive, but to really just examine uh, language in all its different forms and, and all the different cultures that it emerges from and really kind of take stock of the wide variety of languages. But then I noticed that there was a similar urge in other disciplines to say language almost didn't matter, that really we could just be very relative with language. And I wasn't wishing to have any sort of nostalgia where we say, oh, we don't teach kids how to think anymore and no children write anymore by the time they come to university. And I teach at a classical school right now and I have a lot of parents who will say, oh, we have to teach the kids Latin so that they know how to think and so that it's logical. And Latin <laughs> is not a logical language at all. It's very irregular. And so I kind of understood these two tensions on both sides and wanted to say, you don't get some of these great authors like the ones from my childhood, like Lucy Maud Montgomery and Jane Austen, by just saying that anything goes. And so what is opening the door to other types of language while being interested in the way that uh, narrative can shape language into this beautiful thing and can shape the reader while also opening that door more. And so I think that that was the impetus that got me to ICS. A elder at my church kind of saw what I was interested in and he had a history with ICS. And so he said, maybe you should check them out. And I went to ICS while I was still back at 229 College, and I visited for a class and uh, read a little bit of Aristotle and the Nicomachean Ethics with Bob Sweetman. And then I submitted some essays and an application and then came to the Institute for an MA and to study with uh, Bob Sweetman as my supervisor. And I came knowing very specifically what I wanted to write about, and it was this tension of descriptive and prescriptive grammar and wanting to talk about uh, linguistic normativity and form in a way that could bring out that tension. I ended up in some kind of unexpected areas as a result during my MA thesis. I wrote a chapter of my MA on Tolkien and invented languages because he teased out some really interesting ideas for me about playfulness and about um, the influence of historical linguistics, the way that languages change historically and how that results in you know given vocabulary in the present day and you're never really starting off with a brand new fresh language, you're always interpreting and um, reinventing the language that's come before. And I think all of those ideas are very well encapsulated in his novels. And then I ended up doing a lot of work with Calvin Seerveld's philosophy while I was here. Uh, and I'm very grateful to have him nearby so that I can ask questions when I need. 
his work on aesthetics did something very important for me, which was to say that if anything was normative in language, it was that playfulness and creativity be at the heart of the linguistic experience. Um, so I was able to say certain grammatical rules are not prescriptive. Your background doesn't matter. What matters is that you're playful with your language and that you add nuance and this, uh, in his words, allusivity to your speech. And so that idea of being playful with language is where I developed my thoughts on grammar. And from there, I ended up taking up Michel Foucault. So <laughs> Tolkien, Calvin Seerveld, and Michel Foucault as the three interlocutors of my MA thesis, which is a weird group of people very to all talk about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very eclectic. Um, I don't think I could have written this thesis anywhere except at ICS. And I took up Michel Foucault in the last chapter because of my interest in education being, as I said, a Latin teacher and needing to have a praxis for my theory about grammatical education ready for my students and ready for my teaching. And a lot of the later philosophy of Michel Foucault is focused on the subject and how to reconstitute uh, a subject after all of the deconstruction. And he ends up talking about the aesthetics of existence and how necessary it is that creativity be present in that reconstitution of the subject. And so his thoughts there just fit in very well with me wanting to say that if we're going to have students who are inclined to the aesthetics of their own languages when they're finished their literary and grammatical education, the means, the pedagogy of teaching them must similarly have an eye to creativity and aesthetics. And so the necessary thing in every moment of language education is that children learn that no matter what genre of writing they're doing, whether it's perhaps even a grocery list, you know, letters to friends and writing articles and writing papers, talking with friends, any lingual moment in their lives, it must be playful. And what is normative is to add nuance to hit certain grammatical registrars and be very proper. And yeah, that's sort of where I went with my MA thesis. And so I'm staying at ICS for my PhD. I don't really know career-wise what I want to do with a PhD afterwards or whether it'll make its way into a specific type of career. But I knew that I didn't want to do my PhD anywhere else that I can think of a, an environment that would sustain me in the same way or indeed let me just let me study these <laughs> very eclectic things. But so what do you feel like? Do you feel like going on to your PhD is continuing the work that you did in your MA or is it kind of switching gears or is it focusing in more on like one particular issue? How would you kind of characterize that transition from MA to PhD? Yeah. At the end of my MA, I left a couple trails of research that I thought I or someone else who's interested could take up because there were a lot of different avenues. I thought a lot about language and worship, liturgy as being this exceptional moment to practice nuance and creativity in a very structured way that we don't have in other areas of our life. And I also thought about speaking in tongues because uh, speaking in tongues is one of these linguistic phenomena that the wider academy kind of ignores. And I think there are some really interesting aesthetic things going on mm. in speaking in tongues. But I felt like neither of those were avenues that I really wanted to go down for a PhD. And so I have been in an ongoing discussion with Bob Sweetman, who will continue to be my supervisor for the PhD, about where I could take my research. And one idea that we've been tossing around recently is that of rhetoric. Coming from a classics and uh, Latin background and uh, linguistics, I 
have read a fair amount of classical rhetorical theory and Middle Ages rhetorical schools. Those are all subjects that I've kind of tangentially studied. And I still really want my PhD to be focused on drawing out the strata of human life that is lingual and the part of language that is aesthetic and aesthetic before it is communicative in terms of an argument or before it's used to create a logical statement or something like this, because I think the aesthetic is much more primary than the logical in my perceived modal ontology Mm -hmm. um, that I picked up from Sierveld and uh, from the Dutch Reformational tradition here at ICS. Uh, The aesthetic is fairly close to the bottom of that scale for me. And that's not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. Um, And so I'm trying to think of ways that I can express this besides just doing modal ontology because mm-hmm. that's not really my my home but ways of demonstrating how much of language is a sensory experience and how aesthetic considerations are really foundational for speech and so rhetoric is a great way to bring that out uh, in the sense that before you can make a rhetorical claim or you can make propaganda or Mm -hmm. express your ideology in some way, uh, you have to consider the form that it's going to be couched in. How am I going to arrange these words in such a way that it will have the desired effect? And those are often matters of choosing the right vocabulary or choosing the right style of narrative. And those are all aesthetic considerations. And so the idea of taking up rhetoric for my PhD is to always highlight how rhetoric is possible because of this very sensory underpinning to speech. So taking up Plato and Aristotle probably for an opening chapter, the early part of my thesis, and showing how their theory results in the rhetorical schools of the Middle Ages. Probably taking up Nietzsche later on in the thesis as this liminal figure between the medieval rhetorical schools and 20th and 21st century philosophy on rhetoric and propaganda, which takes on an overwhelmingly negative connotation, Mm. probably very justly so. You see all the post-World War philosophers talking about ideology. Mm. And what they're really getting at is that there's this power to language that comes from specifically arranging your thoughts in a given way and by various motivations and various styles. So all of that will be to just highlight this aesthetic layer that I want to point to or how grammar is aesthetically inflected and the way we organize things are because we're aware of the audience that we're crafting our speech for and how certain words and certain sounds will seem to them. And we make those choices every time we open our mouths, uh, even subconsciously. It's not very well sketched out at this point, but started doing some reading specifically for it. And yeah, I'm very excited to kind of investigate something that I've been thinking about for a long time, but in a very new way where I have to read a lot of new books and I have to really learn new things. And it feels like a bit of a departure from the ways that I thought about this before during my MA. So there's a freshness there that I'm excited for. And I'm grateful to Bob for helping me kind of turn that corner and make the PhD its own thing for me. In the third of our new regular segments, we want to talk directly to the professors of the future. Moving on from what you've been working on, we will talk about what it is like to be a scholar and how you made your way to academic life. We hope, over time, to map the journey from being an undergraduate student to being a professor of philosophy or theology, with an emphasis on teaching philosophy in undergraduate programs. So tell us a little bit about your story. 
Yeah, I think my love of scholarship probably started pretty early. I would say it was well formulated by the time I hit my undergraduate years. And I think part of that is that there are a number of female scholars in my family already. And I don't think I could emphasize enough the difference that it makes knowing women who are finishing PhDs, because philosophy is by and large a very male-heavy discipline still at this time. I mean, ICS is wonderful for bringing in diverse voices, but I think being a young child and seeing women in academia was a good boost. And then getting to undergrad and the turn to philosophy as opposed to other disciplines happened fairly late in that undergrad because I did not do philosophy classes in my undergrad. The first time I did philosophy was coming to ICS. Someone thought I could do it. I'm very grateful that they thought I could do it because the first couple months were a real education when I came here and did philosophy for the first time. But people assured me that I had been asking kind of philosophical questions in the end of my undergraduate anyways. I was studying Latin grammar and linguistics and found myself really passionate about what I was studying and always reading interesting things and meeting really interesting people. But I was having questions not about the content, but about how we came to consider it content and kind of questions about how we came to know the things that we were saying. And uh, as I mentioned earlier about kind of the tension between prescriptive and descriptive grammar and linguistics and wanting to know where that conversation came from and why certain aspects of it were bothering me so much. And so it came to the end of my undergraduate and I had really fantastic professors and I have no complaints whatsoever about my undergrad. I had the option to stay and do a master's degree in Latin studies and said, I don't actually want to know more about this. I want to know more about how we know this. And so the desire to take it to a meta-analysis of the material in each of those disciplines drove me into philosophy. And I find that my curiosity is awakened in a very specific way that it wasn't before. As I mentioned, I didn't have specifically philosophical courses during my undergrad. So uh, I felt that the turn to philosophy was more that I was dissatisfied with the types of questions that I was having answered, even though my professors were excellent in their own disciplines. But I did have one Latin adjunct professor for upper year Latin who allowed me to read Cicero and uh, some other philosophers for the translation courses. So we were able to translate philosophically inclined passages in a way that was helpful to me because I could connect the genre and the form of the philosophy with the explanation of philosophical arguments themselves. So I could see how ideas were made to be expressive by the form that they took and kind of the rhetorical tropes and techniques that were employed in their delivery. And I would say that that was very helpful for me in, in knowing that there could be such a connection between text and message in a way that I very readily picked up in my MA. For her, I also read a fair amount of Lucretius's De Rerum Natura, uh, translated it, but also talked about the content of it in a way that other Latin professors were more only about the grammar. She was saying, isn't it interesting the way that they say this? Or isn't it interesting the idea that's being contained here? And so the fact that she was willing to talk about content with me was very helpful in, in seeing that there's a lot more to those texts than just the analysis of the, the speech patterns that we were doing together. And I would say that it feels really optimistic being here that there's not the same classical history of the way philosophy has been done playing itself out within our walls. 
and in the interactions that people have with each other here. And also that we have so many graduates going out to other institutions and hope, hopefully replicating that in some way that if it's a lot easier now than it was for my grandmother when she did her PhD in theology, that uh, a couple of generations of scholars from now, the situation will be very different. And that brings us to the fourth and last of our new regular segments, and our favorite segment every week, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Mark, hit me. What's your pleasure? My pleasure for this week is near and dear to my heart. It is something that I eat most mornings, which is a Montreal-style bagel which are baked in Montreal using wood-fired ovens and are baked at St. Viator Bakery on St. Viator Street. And they are the best things ever. The first time I ate a Montreal-style bagel, I could not believe that I had never eaten one of these things before. It's like the platonic ideal for a bagel. Every other bagel is, a, is, a, is just a mere illusion just a mere copy of this amazing bagel, which just makes my day feel good. Uh, tell me, what distinguishes, other than this platonic aura of excellence that surrounds the bagel, what distinguishes a Montreal bagel from other lesser bagels? Yeah, the difference between a Montreal-style bagel and New York-style bagel, for example, is that New York-style bagels are cooked in or baked in conventional ovens, and they don't have as much sugar, whereas Montreal-style bagels, which are the cream of the crop, in my opinion, are made in wood-fired ovens and are using sugar. And they are shipped to my local metro. Not every metro, but mine, for some reason. I'm very blessed. And so you should check out your local metro and see if they have St. Theodore bagels, because it is something that you don't want to miss. No conventional bagels here. Um, what is my pleasure? I just forgot it. Oh, my pleasure is not food-related at all. It's also not music-related for once. So my pleasure is actually a documentary film that recently came out, and it's called Won't You Be My Neighbor? It's the Mr. Rogers documentary, and pleasure might not be the full extent of the word. It's just like the best thing I've ever seen. <sighs> There's movies where you go and you see them, and then at the end you're like, oh, I cried a little bit. This one, I, I watched it, the movie ended, and there was just like this release of weeping. It was like full on weeping, not just like a little sniffle here and there or whatever. It was just like tears and a stranger next to me gave me a Kleenex. It's really, in terms of like documentary style, it's really well done. They have a lot of like interviews with his family and like people who knew him for a long, long time. Mr. Rogers, for those who don't know, was a TV personality, did kids television and it just talks a lot about like how influential he was in even like advocating for something like educational programming for children. So that's a side of it. It also talks about his life as uh, and the work that he did being influenced by his faith and that just being a completely natural connection and outworking to him. 
And it also talks a lot about like the controversy that he faced, even from like very conservative quarters. And it's really, really, really good. It's very good now because it's like that is the kind of person you wish everyone could be. Like you wish you could be as good as he was. It also shows his like insecurities. Like he wasn't even sure that he was doing good things. And it's like if Mr. Rogers can be unsure about doing good in the world, where are the rest of us? <laughs> but it's worth a watch. It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor. It's past the time that it would probably still be in theaters, but it'll probably be out on DVD or something soon. Be on the lookout. And that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find us all on Twitter. You can find Julia as at Julia R. DeBoer. She also runs a for fun Twitter account with another junior member, Grace Carhart. It's called Out of Context Philosophy or at out underscore philosophy. You can follow my co-host as at Beware the Yeti and me as at Mark Standish. You can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.